Okay, we're jumping right in. Pull your Bibles out. Uh, if you brought your own, awesome. If you forgot yours, then we have one for you conveniently placed in the pew rack in front of you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 again this morning. Is this mic really hot? Like, am I extremely loud right now? Yes, I am. You can turn me down just a smidge. Thank you. Uh, if you are using a pew Bible, we're on page 1013 this, t- this morning. So here we go. Today we're talking about... What happens in a life and what happens even in a a community or in a church where there's a deep commitment to and an embracing of God's grace? Today we're going to camp out on this idea of God's grace, the grace of God and how, how central and essential it is to life in Christ and to life in Christian community. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child, He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. So, so far in this story, if we go back, Luke has been popping back and forth between these two couples, between these two women, really. Both of them are pregnant, miraculous pregnancies in a little bit different way, but both of these women are miraculously pregnant with sons who are going to play enormous roles in God's plan of redemption for the world. And in Luke's story today, as it continues to unfold, the first of these two very anticipated children is born. Zachariah and Elizabeth are now the proud parents of an eight-day-old son, and today is the day that he will be dedicated to and named before God. See, this was a standard operating procedure for a little Jewish boy in the ancient, ancient world. Day eight was the day he was supposed to be named. And you're kind of, maybe you're thinking here, how come it's, it's eight days old and the kid still doesn't have a name? How many in here... Uh, had trouble naming your kids. Like, you knew you were pregnant for lots and lots and lots of months, but then all of a sudden they were born and still there was no name. Did that happen to anyone else or was it just just us? Yeah, two of our three kids actually were born without names. Um, and I don't know if it was just because we were lazy or indecisive or slackers, and we kind of had this idea that, you know what, we had a few names in the hopper, and they would come out, and we would just look at them, and we'd go, you know, which name really fits? And they were all born, and I thought, like, Mr. Magoo. I mean, like, they were just, they were like, oh, oh, I was not prepared for how uncute they were. You know, babies in the movies looked a lot better than, anyway. Okay. Not the case here. There's not a name yet, but that's actually the, the custom, that's the tradition. Day eight was the day. Day eight's a big day. It's the day that if you were a, a young male, you were circumcised and you got your name. Now, let's for a minute talk just for a second about the the naming process. In the first century Jewish culture, names were very, very significant. This is a big deal. 
It wasn't like in our day where people just choose names because they like them or they sound nice or, you know, they start with a specific letter. All of our family has the letter, you know, whatever. No, they didn't just pick names because they sounded cool. Quick side note. Um, I know I'm like side note guy right now, but I'm just adding stuff as I go here. Uh, when we were naming our son, our, our kid number two, he's actually the one kid who had the name on, you know, when he arrived. But in the naming process, I called my brother and I was kicking around a few names with him. And I had this one name that I especially liked. And I was like, Mike, I like this name. And what do you think of this name? And I should have one kid brother. And I was kind of trusting with stuff. And he always gives me good, wise advice. And so he's like, well, why do you like this name so much? And I said, well, dude, just think about it. I mean, just imagine he like pulls up and hits a three right in somebody's face. And then as he's running back down the court, the announcement says it, you know, Daxton Teixeira 4-3. Doesn't that name sound rad? And my brother says, dude, every name sounds rad after you just hit a three. I'm like, that's true. That is not how the naming process went and in the first, in first century Israel. The names that you, the name that you were given carried a lot of weight. They meant something. They described something. A few examples. Jacob and Esau. This is from from Genesis chapter 25. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, which actually means the hairy one. That's kind of an unfortunate name to get. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. And Jacob actually means the one who grabs at the heel or the one who trips up. So a name can describe a child at birth. Uh, in the Jewish world, a name might describe a parent's joy. Samuel, for example, that name means asked for. It's because Samuel's mother asked and begged and pleaded God for this son, and then he was given. Uh, a name might be a declaration of faith. Remember Elijah in the Old Testament? Elijah the prophet, he was born into this very pagan, Baal-worshipping culture, and so he was named Elijah. It means, Jehovah is my God. Kind of this declarative statement that even though this kid is going to be raised in this culture with all these foreign gods, this kid will serve Jehovah as God. And that turned out to be true. So names, they have a lot, of, a lot of significance. And in the first century, the firstborn son would almost always receive a family name. And most of the time that family name would be the name of his father. And that's what everyone expects here, Right? Everyone is expecting that this kid is going to get dad's name. They have waited so long, Zachariah and Elizabeth, for this kid that they have a son now. Certainly, they will give him the name Zachariah. But Elizabeth kind of pauses, hits the pause button here and says, no. And because this is the patriarchal culture and the father had the final say, the people, they actually turn and they like debate. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine this, ladies? You're there, and you, it's your kid. You did all the work, and the neighbors and relatives are all gathered around, and they don't like the name that you've picked, so they appeal to your husband. Is this one okay? Can you imagine? That's exactly what happens here. So they appeal to Zechariah, because he has final say as the father. And, and how does he respond? One technical thing to notice here is you'll remember that at this point in the story, Zechariah still cannot talk. He has no words because, remember earlier, after he'd gone into the temple and seen the angel, and the angel said, here's what God's going to do for you. You and your wife are going to have a child. And then he doubts this. He says, are you sure? Because I'm old and she's old. And I'm just... And so because he doubts, he is struck with this condition of muteness, right? 
So he, he's not able to talk for over nine months. But his condition actually goes further than that. If you look at verse 62 in our passage today, it says that the crowd, after Elizabeth says no, not Zechariah, they, they turn to him and they say, it says, then they made signs to his father. Then they made signs. It's like they're playing charades now all of a sudden. Why? Because not only can he not talk, it turns out that Zechariah also for nine months has not been able to hear. Muteness and deafness in the ancient world were, were often linked together and considered one condition. So earlier in the chapter when Luke says that he cannot talk, it's, it's assumed that as a part of that condition he also cannot hear. And so they turn to Zechariah and they start to gesture towards him to ask him, is it alright that this, this firstborn son of yours is not going to receive your name? So catch how the story goes. Everyone's gathered. They say, let's name him after dad. Elizabeth says no. The crowd kind of goes nuts and they do some wild, wild gesturing aimed at Zechariah to appeal the decision. Then it says this. It says he asked for a writing tablet. Now, scholars tell us that this would have been kind of like the first century version of the whiteboard affirming that last week's sermon was indeed biblical. And so what they would do for people who could not speak is they would take a thin piece of wood, like a, a thin board, and they would spread wax all over it. And then a person would take a sharp object, like a stick or a pointy rock, and they would sketch words onto the wax, and then they could kind of smear it off, and they could use this sort of as a, as a portable whiteboard. And that's what he asks for. They hand him the, this, this kind of ancient version of the whiteboard, and now is the moment of truth. And you can see how Luke, don't miss this, friends. Luke tells all, gives us all the details of how this story unfolds, and he does it for a reason. He wants us to kind of feel the tension and the anticipation and the building moment towards this, this, this moment of pause where Zechariah will grab the board, and then as the crowd awaits the verdict, he will sketch. And then they wait, and then he turns it around. John is his name. John is his name. And so we've kind of built into this moment, what will this child's name be? And there's debate, and there's conversation, and there's even a kind of a sort of an argument, and then all of a sudden it's declared, it is written, it is sketched onto this piece of wood, John is his name. And in your English translations, it probably says what? His name is John, right? That's not actually the way Luke writes it. He records it in Greek. John is his name. Because in Greek, the first word of the sentence always gets the emphasis. Always is what's highlighted. And here's what Luke wants us to know. The name of this little boy is significant. The name of this little boy is telling us something. What God has declared, and what Zachariah and Elizabeth agree to name this young man says a lot about this story, and it says a lot about our God. First of all, anyone in here actually named John? Any Johns? Yeah, it's a pretty good name, right? Do you know what it means? The name John means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. And right 
out of the gate, right from the very beginning of this story, in the very first chapter of his gospel message, Luke wants us to know that under no uncertain terms is anything that's about to happen going to come about for any other reason than God's grace. This is not a story about the faithfulness of Zachariah and Elizabeth. This is not a story about the gifts and talents and abilities of John. This story is 100% completely and totally about the grace and mercy of God descending into the world. This eight-day-old little boy, one day he will grow up to be the one who announces and the one who heralds and the one who paves the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. And Luke is saying this whole thing, this whole story, this entire gospel message is so totally and completely rooted in God's grace that even the guy who announces the guy, his name means God is gracious. Now we have some theological terminology for this in the church, this idea that at the very center, at the very core is the grace of God. Everything else rests on that. We call it sola gratia, grace alone. And sola gratia is this idea that we hold to that, that we are saved and as Christians we are We are redeemed and restored and loved and forgiven and embraced and declared to be in a right relationship with God by nothing of our own merit and only, only by His unearned and undeserved love in our lives. See, from the very beginning here, Luke wants to be crystal clear. At the very core of this Jesus message is this. You bring nothing to the table God brings everything. You bring nothing to the table. God brings it all. And believe it or not, friends, this is actually a very difficult concept for many of us to embrace because the truth is this. We like earning, especially as Western Americans, right? We are taught that you're supposed to earn what you get. You should work for what you have. We enjoy deserving things. We actually thrive and are taught to achieve and strive for stuff. And that's not all bad. But in this moment, it sort of works against us as we try to relate to a holy, powerful, loving, and merciful God. Not contributing at all to our own salvation is something that does not come easy for you and me. Some of you will relate to this. Friends invite you to dinner, right? What's the first thing you say? Yeah, that's right. The ladies know. The guys are just like, I say, great. <laughs> I say, awesome. Uh, I say, what time should we show? The ladies, you understand this. Ladies, talk to me here. You say, what can I bring? And then the answer comes back, especially if you have good friends. Like, no, 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 bring nothing. Bring nothing. And you're like, no, 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 I have to bring something. Can I bring a dessert? Can I bring a side dish, a bottle of wine? I mean, can I bring something? I have to bring something to the table. Because we can't just be freeloaders, right? Friends, at the center of the gospel message is this truth. We are all just freeloaders. 
That's the one thing that unites us. That's the one thing that we have in common. As we gather to worship God, we are all desperately riding the coattails of Jesus. Grace alone says all believers stand before God with the same credentials, the the same resume, the same rap sheet. Christ died for me. Jesus hung on the cross because I could not make things right with God on my own. I am completely, 100% dependent and reliant on God's mercy and grace. I'll never forget the first time that grace became real tangible to me, that that I started to understand what it meant and what it felt like. I was in the fifth grade. My fifth grade year in school, I was on a little league team and my dad was the assistant coach. And we were pretty good that year. Actually, fifth grade was the high point of my baseball career. I mean, like, I, I peaked out at fifth grade and it was all downhill from there. And let me tell you why I was, I was actually pretty good at baseball in the fifth grade. It's because I was enormous. I know this is hard for some of you to believe, but I was this really tall, huge, enormous kid. And I think I was like 6'2 in the fifth grade. It was crazy. I don't know, maybe not quite that big, but I was huge. I was like two feet taller than all the other kids. And because I was so big, I was a little bit stronger. And when you play Little League Baseball... The older you get, the farther back the pitching mound gets from home plate. But when you're a fifth grader, it's still pretty close. And because I was so huge in the fifth grade, when I would pitch, I could throw the ball. I mean, I was like halfway to home plate just when I extended my arm. The kids didn't have a chance. I mean, they were like up there just terrified. Like, who's the enormous kid on the mound? You know? So I'd get up to pitch and I'd just like fastball, fastball, fastball. I could strike, I just like struck everybody out. Again, I, I got worse at baseball from, from there. But in fifth grade, did pretty well. And because of this, our team did really well. If you have a good pitcher in baseball, you're in good shape. And so we moved through like the other teams. I think we had an undefeated year. And then we were in the championship game. Championship game. I'm pitching in the championship game. My dad's the assistant coach. You know, like this is like Bad News Bears or like some one of those great movies you watch. And like we're going to win the whole thing. And the championship game was on a different field than we usually played on. On this particular field, the pitching mound was a little different. And there was actually a, a spot that was kind of worn out in the front. And so right in the place where I would put my foot down, there was this big hole. And it kind of was like throwing my pitches off. And then it started to get into my head. And all of a sudden, I found that I could not throw a strike. And so now I'm up on the pitching mound. It's the championship game. All these, all these fans, all this pressure, this huge moment. And all of a sudden, I start walking batters. And I, as a fifth, as a giant, enormous fifth grader in the middle of the field with everybody watching, I start to completely lose it. I'm having a meltdown. And I'm getting frustrated, and I'm like saying stuff to the ump, and I'm frustrated with the mound, and I'm talking to it, and I start to like cry at one point and kind of throw a little temper tantrum. It got so bad that my father had to call timeout, walk out into the middle of the field, and remove me from the game. So now I'm sitting in the dugout, watching my team lose the championship game, knowing that I've embarrassed not only myself, but my dad, one of the coaches, by throwing a fit on the field. The game ends, we say, like, congratulations to the other team, and then we go and we get in the car for the longest ride home of my life. And I'm just waiting. You know, my dad was a colonel in the United States Air Force, and you did not act that way in his home. You especially did not embarrass him on the Air Force base where he served. And I'm thinking, I am a dead man. And we sat in the car and we drove all the way home and not a single word was spoken. It was actually worse. I'd rather have him just yell at me, right? 
pull into the driveway. My dad parks the car and he turns it off and we're just sitting there. Seemed like forever. We're just sitting there in silence. And all of a sudden my dad says, you embarrassed yourself today, didn't you? And I said, yes, sir. And then another long, long pause. And then he turns to me and he looks me right in the eyes and he says, it won't happen again, will it? And I said, no, sir. And he said, then it's done. And we got out of the car and to this day, my father has never mentioned that moment to me or anyone else again. In fact, a few years back, I was asking him about it and he does not even remember it. And it was that moment with my dad. It was that moment that I think changed my relationship with my father in some way. And it, and it changed something in me. And, and I've always thought to myself, I bet you that is how the grace of God feels, maybe just a little. What you deserve, you don't get. And what you get, you do not deserve. And Luke says, that reality... That kind of a relationship with our Heavenly Father is at the very core of His gospel message. It's not about you. It's not about what you've done. It's not about what you will do or even can do. It is all about the grace and mercy that God extends to you. I guess the question I have for us today, church, is this. How deeply do we believe this? Do we really understand do we really embrace the grace and mercy of god as the primary driving fuel of our lives and relationship with him is grace just this thing we talk about is it just some theological concept that we refer to is it just a few words that the reformers penned years ago or is the mercy and grace of god truly something that saturates our lives and changes us at the very core. And what I want to do this morning is talk about three things from this story, from Zachariah's story, this, these few verses and the birth of John that I think show us what will be present. What are three things that will be present when the grace and mercy of God is embraced in our lives? And we'll move through these quickly. The first thing I believe that we'll see when God's grace is embraced is this. Transformation through correction. Now this is one of those moments where you think like, we're talking about grace, right? And then all of a sudden you say, hey, when grace is present, let me tell you what will be present. Correction will be present. Discipline will be present. Rebuke will be present. And it sounds kind of odd, but I love this story about Zechariah because you know what? This is the moment where Zechariah gets redeemed. This is a second chance moment for Zechariah because the last time we talked about him from up here, the last time he was a part of the story and a central character, guess what? He failed. He completely blew it. He had this huge moment and there was this angel and this promise of God and then what does he do? He, he sticks his foot in his mouth and he doubts the power and grace of the living God and because of that, he, he is disciplined he gets rebuked, he gets corrected, and he's struck mute and deaf. And so for nine months, he's lived in silence. Nine months to think about his failure. Nine months just to reflect on 
what's really happening in his heart and who he really is and why he could not trust and believe in God even though he's a priest for crying out loud. Okay? So God disciplines him. But understand this, friends. Does God do this? Is God kind of, is like, is he like the angry, bitter God? Is this one of those moments where God's like, that stinking Zachariah. Man, I've told him, I've told him, I've told him. And he still doesn't get it. And he, he has the audacity to doubt me after I send an angel. Well, I'll show him. I'm going to strike him mute. See how he likes that. This is like a kick the dog moment for God. No. Friends, this is God disciplining Zechariah because he loves him. This is God disciplining Zechariah. And that discipline, that correction is actually the grace of God. Think about this from a parent perspective. You know, no good parent punishes their kid because they love to punish their kid. It's one of the great revelations um, around becoming a parent. When you are a kid, you always have this sense that your parents have some pleasure and, you know, they send you to your room and you're in there like, oh, I just like punishing me and blah, 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 like, you know. They'll be sad when I, you know, don't love them anymore, you know, all this stuff, right? And, and then your parents are like, this will hurt me more than it hurts you. And you're like, yeah, right. And then you become a parent and you actually discover that that's true. That there is nothing fun or enjoyable about disciplining your kids at all. In fact, if it was my choice, I would never discipline them. But my wife says that I have to. <laughs> no, the reason I do, it's not because it's fun or not because I enjoy it in any way. But the reason I discipline my children is because I love them. And I desperately want them to grow, to become the people God longs for them to become. And friends, that's the reason God disciplines us. It's an act of love. It's actually an offering of grace. And the question is, will you receive God's grace when he corrects you? I don't know if you knew this when you signed up to be a follower of Jesus, if you're here today and you're a Christian. But did you know that as a Christ follower, one of the main ways that God will react with you is through disciplining you? That's one of the main ways he'll express his love for you. Just by correcting you, thinking, really? Is that true? Well, read this verse for me. I got a couple of verses for you. Proverbs chapter three. My son, read this out. We're going to do out loud reading in church. You guys ready? Okay, we brushed up on our reading skills. Here we go. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent His rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those He loves as a father the son He delights in. Hear that? When God disciplines you, that just means He cares. That just means He loves you. That just means He sees the potential in you and He longs for you to live up to it. How about this one? This one's 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, even... In the Bible, even through the scriptures, God is at work rebuking and correcting and training and transforming our hearts. And what we see in this passage and in Zechariah's story is that he receives God's grace in the form of correction. He doesn't, he doesn't shun it. He doesn't push it aside. He receives it and he is changed. The words of doubt and self-reliance that he spoke months ago have now become 
words of confidence and words of praise. His mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak, praising God. And next week, Pastor Matt is going to preach on Zechariah's song and we're going to hear about the words of praise that come flowing out of his mouth because he has learned from the discipline of God and he's allowed God's grace through discipline to change his heart and mind and perspective. I guess the question is this, friends. How's your heart today? Is the grace of God so paramount, so present in your life that you find yourself able to receive correction? That when challenges and struggles and correction comes your way, you see it as God's grace. You see it, you see those things as ways that God is working to shape and form and change you and help you become the person that he wants you to become? Or do those things, does the challenge of our world just make you bitter? Friends, when God's grace is embraced, there will be transformation through correction. Second, when God's grace is embraced, there will be a growing reverence for God. It says this in verse 65. All this stuff happens pregnancies and birth and muteness and then the words come back and the son is named and he's called John. All this stuff is going on that says the neighbors were all filled with awe. I talked about this a little bit at the, the, the Beaverton Foursquare seven prayer night. But there's something about the grace of God at work in the lives of people that just produces awe. When you see God's grace poured out on someone and working and changing and moving, it is just an awesome, amazing thing. That little word awe, does anyone remember what that word is? Anyone? It's the little Greek word phobos. Phobos, and here's what it means. Phobos means startled or afraid or terrified. It means that there's an element of fear, that there's reverence, that there's respect, that there's awe for the power and possibility of God. It says that as God is moving and His grace is poured out on this couple and on this little boy, there's this awe, there's this reverence, there's this fear, there's this sense that God is powerful and at work and it is starting to ripple out throughout the countryside. It's going beyond just Zachariah and Elizabeth now and other people are starting to sense that God is on the move. Remember the guards at Jesus' tomb? The angel shows up and rolls the stone away and it says that they they shook like dead men. It says they were so awestruck. They were so phobos. They shook and became like dead men. The, The disciples out on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus comes walking out to them on the water. The words... That the word that is used to describe their feeling in that moment, phobos, they are completely blown away, awestruck by the power of God. Friends, when we start to experience and truly understand the power of God's grace, there will be a heightened reverence. There will be a little bit of awe. There will be some fear that even starts to well up in your soul when you start to understand just how powerful our God truly is. I love the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, the Narnia series, because they always describe God with these words. He's good, but he ain't safe. He's good, but I should be a little... Nervous when I'm around him because I've never been around a creature with so much power. And God's power is so often displayed in his grace. His grace, friends. And here's the reason why God's grace is so scary to us. 
Most of us, we don't really think of ourselves as sinners. I mean, I know we're supposed to. That's the answer we're supposed to give in church. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners, yeah. But when we really think about it, if I really press in, most of you would not consider yourselves to be big, awful, horrible, wretched sinners. You would say, you know, I'm, I'm actually kind of a marginal sinner at best. You know, there's people in this world way worse than me, way bigger sinners than I am. Actually, kind of relatively speaking, I'm actually doing pretty darn good. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the magnitude of your sin is so huge and so enormous and so significant that you cannot handle it on your own. That it takes the grace of God to get your sin under control. In fact, your sin is so huge that the God of the universe had to come to earth and hang on a cross and die. Friends, I will say it again. Your sin and my sin is so massive that it took the cross, the brutal execution, not just of an innocent man, but of a holy God to redeem it. That's how huge your sin is. And God's grace reminds us. When God's grace is huge, it reminds us how huge our sin is. One of the greatest songs ever written. I hope you'll agree with me. Amazing Grace. Listen to this song. Listen to this line from the song Amazing Grace. This is a real interesting line. I think you'll recognize it. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Well, like, how does grace teach a heart to fear? It's kind of, I mean, weird to think about that. grace in that way, isn't it? But here's the point. When we really see the price of God's grace, when we look at the cross and we see the enormity of our sin, there is something about that that should just make us a little fearful. It just smacks us in the face with the reality of who we really are. But in that same instant, in that same breath, that same grace that shows us how huge our sin is, also tells us that all of our sin has been wiped clean through the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. In one instant... Grace, fear, and relief. And this leads to the final point I want us to consider this morning, and that's this. When grace is embraced, faith becomes contagious. You see, so often in the Christian world, we've had this sense that if we can just get our acts together and be really good, cleaned up, healed up, perfect people, other people will want to join us. That will be attractive. If we look better than the rest of the world, then the rest of the world will want to be with us and like us. But friends, that actually repels people. When in your life has self-righteousness ever looked attractive? It never does. But that's why God is so attractive. Because he says... People aren't drawn to the fact that you are righteous. They aren't drawn to the fact that you are perfect. They aren't drawn to the fact that you are good. They're drawn to the fact that you're forgiven, which assumes that you've got troubles. This is what I love about Elizabeth in this story. It says, right at the beginning of the story, she's having this baby and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy. Her neighbors know that she's been shown great mercy. You know what that means? That means her neighbors know that she needs great mercy. 
That means her neighbors see that she's a person of need and a person of pain and a person of hurts and a person of shortcomings. And the the focus here is not that Elizabeth has finally got her act together and she's finally in a really good place. Let's go hang out. It's this is a person who has experienced the grace and mercy of God. And when you are a person who is saturated with the grace and mercy of God, other people are drawn to that. That's how Luke ends this passage. He closes out this story and he says, word is starting to spread. The grace of God is coming into the world. Sinners are now welcome. People who are broken and hurting are now being met by the one true God. Friends, let's be a church that when we gather, we remember that it's the grace of God that sits right in the middle of who we are. Let's be a group of people that don't say, look at us. We're all together because of Jesus, of course, but we're all together. No, say people, we are broken people and the mercy and grace of God has met us in a powerful way. Because I think when that is our message and that is our reality and we really do believe it, people will be drawn, not to us, but the God who loves us and forgives us in spite of ourselves. That's Christmas. The God of the universe comes to broken, hurting sinners like you and me. Father, thank you so much for this message of grace. Thank you that we don't have to earn it or contribute to it, contribute to it, not even in a, in a little way, Father. So this Christmas season, I am praying that there's a fresh sense of your grace in our lives, in our midst, that there, there will be freedom felt because we see and understand again that we are undeserving but you love us still. Thank you, Lord, for mercy. Thank you for grace. Help us to be people that live in that, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.